Hey, good morning. And as the kids are, are being excused, I just want to give a reminder or for those of you who are guests. Um, there's a little um, note about this in page two of your service sheet, but children ages zero to three um, are welcome to be in nursery throughout the whole service. They're also welcome in here, but um, you can check them in even before service. It's open for you. Children age four to nine, there's children's church. They come down for the uh, children's sermon. And then children ages 10 to 13, we have a Bible study twice a month. And today happens to be uh, one of those days. So they're starting their Bible study today. So um, yeah, pray that the Lord's Spirit would go with those kids and keep teaching them. Um, Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been uh, studying through the book of Proverbs during the month of September. Some of you guys are reading uh, one proverb, or one chapter of Proverbs a day. Um, and then we've been doing this sermon series on the book of Proverbs. And actually, uh, the first few weeks of the sermon series, we were going through some of the longer chapters, some of the longer sections, which occur in Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. But then there's a shift that takes place in chapter 10 where we start to get rapid-fire, shorter Proverbs. And uh, what we decided we wanted to do is, a few weeks in, and today's the week, we're going to switch to something more topical. So we're going to be discussing different topics like uh, work and friendship and poverty and sexual temptation and family and more. And uh, since Proverbs usually does jump from topic to topic... Um, we'll actually be drawing verses together from various chapters to get sort of a composite sketch of what Proverbs says about it. Now, Proverbs actually says a lot about the topic we're on today, which is the topic of anger. And in fact, if somebody could pass around the, um, the scripture sheets with the, with the Proverbs, just so that everybody has one, um, you don't feel like you have to jump around the whole time. And uh, if I put everything that Proverbs had to say on this handout, uh, we wouldn't have enough space. Proverbs really addresses this topic a lot. Now, uh, anger is a huge, huge topic in our world today. I hope we know that. In fact, you might say that we live in a culture of anger. So we see it in politics. We see it in social media. Never look at the comment section on the bottom of a YouTube video. Our movies actually often glorify to such a degree that even our heroes, um, their main thing that they do in the movie is some kind of vindictive anger. Right? We glorify anger. Anger is also a huge topic in the Bible. Um, And while there is such a thing as righteous indignation or anger that is in keeping with the character of God, the overwhelming majority of passages in the Bible speak negatively about anger. Anger is viewed as sort of a breeding ground for temptation. In fact, the Bible speaks more about the temptations that come with, with anger than it does even with wealth. You know, we've, we've talked about money and wealth and the temptations, and the New Testament very consistently talks about the temptations of wealth. It's a very risky thing. You know, uh, you know there, there were generous people who, who, who had means in the Bible, but in, in the case of anger, very rarely is anything positive said about anger in the Bible from beginning to end. And I'll just say that I think Christians today have a tendency to overtrust their anger. We have a tendency to think that it's righteous, that it's justified and healthy, 
rather than treat it with the kind of skepticism that we see throughout the pages of Scripture. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Listen to this. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think we actually think it's sometimes the opposite. We say we're looking for things to be angry about because we think it'll show the righteousness of God. You know, if we put a message on Facebook that has a whole bunch of, you know, exclamation points at the end of it and sort of angry emojis, we're like, yes, I just showed the righteousness of God. I would just call us to just take a little caution, be a little skeptical of whether our heart's in the right place and listen to what God's word has to say about anger. Because it says in God's word in several places, one of God's favorite descriptions of himself is the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Is he quick to anger? No. We do see God get angry in the Bible, and there is such a thing as righteous indignation. There is such a thing as anger that's in keeping with God's character. And in fact, I've known several people, especially in this season, that have gone through injustices in their life that I I believe I've seen pictures of righteous anger. Even in the last few weeks, I don't want to say that it doesn't exist. But the scripture says that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord's gracious and compassionate. That's the reason why he's slow to anger, because he's gracious. He's gracious. A lot of times we jump to anger. There's a misunderstanding. There's an opportunity to teach. There's an opportunity to edify somebody. But we jump to anger so quickly, and then that gets them on their guard. You know what I'm saying? And so the the opportunity to edify a brother or sister or even a stranger is broken up by us jumping to anger. I think we all know what James means in this warning. Anger has the power to break up marriages and families. It creates conflict with our neighbors. It causes churches to split. And it can poison our own souls, guys. It can poison our own souls. Jesus says in Matthew 5, we just heard it read, He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But he said, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council, and anyone who says, you fool, you fool, just contempt, just kind of carrying contempt for people, he says, are liable to the hell of fire. You walk around with that kind of contempt. You're in danger of judgment, he says. He treats anger on sort of a sliding scale with murder. Murder is almost always a crime of passion, guys, even if it's premeditated. It comes from somebody getting angry about something. And Jesus said, be very careful. Be very careful. We will judge murderers all the time, but we don't really realize that we participate in the anger that they showed when they took that person's life. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts this beautifully when he talks about two different men that both have an anger problem. He said the one man, because he's not very clever and he's not of noble birth, the worst that happens with his anger problem is that his buddies laugh at him. He said, but another man who has that same anger problem, because he's of noble birth and because he has access to power, his anger problem causes him to lash out and it causes the death of innocent thousands. So it's the same problem. It's just the occasion is different. And so Jesus says, wash the inside of your cup. Be careful with anger. Don't trust it so easily. 
He also ties it with unforgiveness. Did you notice that? He goes on to say, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Your, your, your gift, your little sheep is wandering off while, while you're going to reconcile with your brother. But Jesus is trying to say, Look, you think you're going to make things right with God by offering this sacrifice, and your brother has something legitimate against you. Or maybe it's illegitimate. But you still go and seek reconciliation first. Then come and offer your gift, he says. And so anger is oftentimes tied to unforgiveness. It's tied to a lack of reconciliation with other people. You know, this, uh, this tradition that we have on every Sunday, where after we confess our sins and we ask everyone to stand and we say, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And you say, and also with you. And then we go around the church and we shake people's hands and we say, the peace of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. This tradition in the church actually started very early, very early in the church, in the patristic era of the church. And what that was, was a, was a liturgical manifestation of what Jesus is saying here, which is it gives you the opportunity before you go to the altar to receive the holy sacrament. It gives you the opportunity to make things right with somebody in your community where, where you actually need reconciliation. Oftentimes it's, you know, uh, for me at least, historically it's been turning to my wife and saying, I'm so sorry. <laughs> let's, let's make things right between us before we go up to Holy Communion, right? And so, um, so that's, that's where that actually came from, that, that exchanging of peace. It's an opportunity to reconcile with someone. Now, it's not always possible to reconcile. The scripture says, if it's possible, insofar as it concerns you, live at peace with one another. Now, sometimes you've done everything you can do, and it's still not possible to live at peace with them. And Jesus isn't saying, well, don't worship me until, until things get right. No, 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 no. <laughs> By all means, come to the altar. But we do what we can so that if it's possible, we can live at peace with one another. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what, um, what our Proverbs readings have to say about anger and I want to do something a little different this morning. We do this every now and then. I'm going to talk a little bit about what Proverbs has to say. I'm not going to address every verse here. But because I think there's such a misunderstanding between um, righteous anger and unrighteous anger, I'm going to talk a little bit from Proverbs, but I'm actually then going to open it up to some questions and answers. And uh, so we've done, we, we do this every now and then in service. And so I want you, as you're listening, to kind of think through, is there anything that I want to ask? It's not going to be a super long time of Q&A. But let's just kind of wrestle together with this as a community. Does that sound good? All right, so look at your Proverbs reading with us, with me. And I think as we look at what Proverbs has to say about anger, I think it's actually helpful to say a few words about Hebrew poetry. Because the book of Proverbs is written in a poetic format, for the most part, all throughout. And um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but 33%, a full third of the Old Testament, is written in poetic form. So the Bible is full of poetry. In fact, if all the poetic portions from the Old Testament were gathered together in one place, it'd be longer than the New Testament. Isn't that incredible? And um, sometimes the Hebrew writer will even use poetic forms that we used in elementary school, like... Um, uh, like an acrostic form where you start each line with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet and you just kind of go down through the whole Hebrew alphabet. That's what happens, uh, the famous passage, the wife of the noble character uh, in Proverbs 31, that's an acrostic poem. Longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is an acrostic poem where there's eight lines um, for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. 
And so sometimes we see things like this. And like all poetry in any language, it's full of imagery and alliterations, word plays and puns, and all of this creativity in the language is leverage to express a greater sense of power, right? a greater sense of beauty, a greater sense of glory than can just be expressed with just day-to-day language or with just a historic statement, right? However, while there are some of the features of Hebrew poetry that will be recognizable to us, it's important to note that there are many differences between Hebrew poetry and English poetry. So in the first place, in Hebrew poetry, rhyme is not important. Rhyme scheme is just not a thing. English poetry oftentimes relies heavily on rhyme rhyme scheme. But in Hebrew, uh, basically the way that it works is so many of the words rhyme, it's not even impressive. (laughs) Um, It would be a little bit like, um, like Spanish, where so many of so many words end in ah or o. That uh, rhyming is less impressive, so you see less rhyming in Spanish poetry, even less in Hebrew. Very little rhyming in Hebrew poetry. And also, in the second place, Hebrew poetry has no meter. So there's no meter. Or, or, or if there is, it's been lost to us. And we can't discern what it, what it is. So what is the distinctive mark of Hebrew poetry? And... Um, I think, I think as I begin to explain this, you'll, and you kind of just think through, if you've spent time in the Psalms, if you've spent time in Proverbs, if you've spent time in poetic sections of the Old Testament, you'll recognize this. So think with me for a second. The distinctive mark of Hebrew poetry is something called parallelism. Parallelism. So parallelism refers to a sense of intentional correspondence between two lines. Line A and line B. They're set next to each other, Right? Sometimes parallelism uh, highlights a contrast. So um, the subject of line A and the subject of line B, um, are, they completely contrast one another. And, and setting them alongside one another helps us to see that and bring it out. Sometimes uh, line A and line B are synonymous. And sometimes something less obvious is at work. So let me show you what I mean. Look with me at Proverbs 15, verse 18, the first verse listed on your handout. It says this, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. We saw the tornado in the children's sermon. Stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Now you probably notice the parallelism right away, right? It's a parallelism of contrast. The subject in line A, the hot-tempered man or the hot-tempered person, is directly contrasted with line B, the the one who's slow to anger. Right, And by setting them alongside one another, the, the fruit of their temperament, of these two different temperaments, is then contrasted. Solomon wants us to see clearly that one temperament will stir up strife while the other quiets contention. The fruit is the exact opposite. And it's all because one has control of his anger while the other does not. Does that make sense? you see how the parallelism in here brings out that contrast more clearly? I remember a few years ago, an NFL referee got into trouble for something that on the surface didn't seem like a big deal. So he made a call that a player didn't like, and this player got super angry and effusive to him, and he was arguing with him. And, and you saw the ref kind of talking back to him. And what you found out after the game is that the ref was being really sarcastic with him. 
and was denigrating this display of anger. He was saying he was acting like a little boy and all this sort of stuff, and the player got really upset. Well, the league investigated this incident, and they actually fined the referee. Why? It seemed like, oh, well, this guy kind of blew up in anger, and the referee, you know, he was just kind of walking away a little bit. Well, what they said was that the referee is in a position of authority, and it's their job to diffuse anger in these situations, to quiet contention, as Proverbs would say, rather than to exacerbate it. Does that make sense? You know, it's his role to just not get into it, not throw coal on the fire of this person's anger, right? And the player was in the wrong for, you know, um, you know this, this display of anger, of course, no doubt. But the point is, is that when you're in that position of authority and you see anger and you see somebody on the edge, you don't want to exacerbate that. You want a quiet contention. I think sometimes parents, as parents, I know I do, we make the mistake of not quieting contention when it comes to our kids. So our kids are already upset about something. They're already upset with one another. And instead of diffusing anger, we throw coal on the fire through sarcasm or through little insults or through you know, saying, you know, that's not how an eight-year-old acts. You're acting like a two-year-old or whatever. You know, and, and, and sometimes what it does is actually tips the scales and gets them even more furious, right? Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't provoke your children. Don't stir up strife. You're in a position of authority. You want a quiet strife. Now, there's a time, I believe very much, that there's a time for disciplining your children and showing anger to communicate something about how much this behavior displeases you or to defend one of your children against another or to say that's not the way that we behave in the house or to say don't run out in the road. Sarah Hall said, Sarah Hall's commonly said when it comes to the Hebrew prophets, oftentimes it sounds like they're yelling. And she said, you could kind of think of it as an analogy like this. It's almost like Israel is a child that's playing in the road, and it's a dangerous place to play. And the prophets are saying, no, don't, don't, get out of there, get out of there. This is, this is not good, right? And sometimes that's the way to instruct. You know, it's not good to be calm when your kid's playing you know, in, the, in the road and there's a car coming. Right? There's a place for anger, but for the most part, we want to be people of peace. Right? People who quiet contention, not people who are exacerbating the anger in our households. All right, let's look at another one, another way of uh, using Hebrew parallelism. Proverbs 17.27. It says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Now, this is very different than the last, if you notice. Instead of making a contrast, it's a synonymous use of parallelism. So the subject in line A, the person who restrains his words, is very much like the subject in line B, the person who has a cool spirit. They're synonymous, right? So in one sense, you could say that the lines are saying the same thing, but it would be truer to say that by placing them side by side, Solomon is bringing a greater sense of nuance, Right? The person who restrains his words is able to do so exactly because that person also has a cool spirit. Such a person has both knowledge and understanding. They're one and the same, and yet the point in line A is made all the more rich because it's set alongside the synonymous point in line B. Do you see that? Isn't God's word cool? This is cool. 
All right, now the Bible nerd in me is having a little bit too much fun. <laughs> but let me make one more point about this, because as I said, sometimes there's a parallelism of contrast, sometimes they're synonymous, but sometimes the connection is less obvious than that. So look with me at Proverbs 19.11. And when you guys are, are reading Proverbs on your own, I want you to look for this. Look for the parallelism. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Well, here, right away, we notice there's something different going on with the parallel structure. It's not a contrast, and it's not synonymous, because... The subject of line A never changes in line B. We might call it amplification. Line A sets forth a truth. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and then it's amplified by line B. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Right, there's all kinds of ways in which these parallel lines re relate to one another. Basically, in this structure, it's saying A, and what's more, B. That's how one, one scholar summarized this kind of parallelism what I'm calling amplification. But the point is not to get lost in just the poetic structure. That will help you as you're studying to just try to see what's the word saying, what's God's word trying to communicate. But we're not supposed to just get lost in the poetic structure. Far from it, the poetic structure is being leveraged to deliver to us a moral or theological meaning. This is truly profound wisdom. We all know people who are quick to anger, people and people who are slow to anger, right? We, we all know people like that. Well, Solomon wants it, us to have it clear that slowness to anger, not quickness to anger, arises from good sense. Furthermore, Solomon amplifies his message by adding a second point, that it is his glory to overlook an offense. We think about that. I, I, don't, I think it's very countercultural, right? We, we want to say, I, I don't want anyone to dupe me. I don't want anybody to offend me. You can't do that to me. Right? We really are passionate about like, defending our own pride. Right? But, but Solomon is saying, it's your glory to overlook an offense. You know, don't, don't allow that person to injure your pride too much. You know? It's okay. Move on. I can give an obvious example from my own life. And as I started preparing this, I realized some of you guys in here who have known me for a long while have never shared this story with you. And you'll see why. It's not, to, <laughs> it's not to my glory. So I was, uh, I was at the skating rink. And I was in seventh grade. And you can imagine all the nice you know, techno music and whatever is going on. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, just, I'm standing outside of the rink. And I turn. And I was in seventh grade. I look at this eighth grader. I'm looking again at the people skating by. And then I look at him again. I don't know why. But he just says, what are you looking at? And so I said, nothing much. <laughs> and then he said, what'd you just say? Why don't you say that to my face? And I was an overly bold and prideful little punk. <laughs> so I turned to him and I said, I said I'm not looking at much. <laughs> and, um, and he said, oh, you're lucky. You're lucky, man. You're lucky I don't pound your face right now. And I said, whatever. And he walked away, and I thought that was the end of it. But about an hour later, he circled back to me with three or four of his friends. 
and it ended up in a brawl which spilled out onto the skating rink floor and had to be broken up by the police. I, I kid you not. And I was spitting blood afterwards. It was not good. And it ended up starting this sort of ongoing feud between my friends and this group of friends that lasted several weeks. Now, as you can... I, I didn't grow up going to church. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, this was an impactful event in my life. And I don't think the message immediately sunk in for me. But later on, I realized, man, that wasn't worth it. Right? It wasn't worth all of that just to defend my pride in that moment. Some things are worth standing up for and fighting for, no doubt. But my pride isn't one of them. Better to follow Jesus' words and turn the other cheek. Better to follow the way of wisdom and overlook an offense. What are you looking at? Nothing, man. We're good. The end. <laughs> That's where it could have ended, right? But I was not a man of wisdom. So I, I've said a few things here, and, uh, and it was just to kind of begin to stir up a little bit of Q&A. We actually talked about anger in catechesis hour a few weeks ago, and we did some Q&A on it, and so I thought it'd be good to do that in here as well. Just, just to kind of summarize a, a few things that I'm saying, sometimes our anger is tied to unforgiveness or a lack of reconciliation with other people. Right? Sometimes our anger is tied to a defending of our own pride. Sometimes we just have too short of a fuse in the first place. And we also talked about how there might be some legitimate forms of anger, even when it comes to disciplining your children, or when it comes to the character that we see in God, that righteous indignation. And we can have that, but the scriptures overwhelmingly speak warnings when it comes to the topic of anger. All right, now I just want to open it up for a few thoughts, questions, comments, mad rants, or prophetic utterances. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So he said in the NFL's example, if the official would have just walked away, would that not have exacerbated his anger? Um, I I don't think so. I think what the NFL was saying is that um, by sort of swinging back with jabs, it actually ended up exacerbating the situation. I think that. Um, it was unlikely that the player would just start kind of shoving and hitting the ref if the ref was walking away. But uh, if, if, it, if the player did, obviously, that would be very wrong and I'm sure it would be fined and you know, potentially suspended for many, many games. But, but um, I, I think usually the turning of the other cheek doesn't exacerbate the anger. Um, at times it does. I mean, I think we saw that with, with Martin Luther King. I think we saw that with Gandhi. Who, who sought to apply Jesus' teaching here in um, the Sermon on the Mount. But what they said is, is essentially, when someone hits you, when somebody strikes you, when somebody does something um, physically to assault you or offend you, a slap, you know, that, you know, Jesus isn't talking about. When somebody pulls a knife on you, you know, give them your other side to let them stab the other side or something. He's talking about an offensive strike. Um, Basically, you have two choices, to fight or flight. That's kind of human instinct, right? Either I'm going to hit you back or I'm going to run. It's very interesting that as Martin Luther King Jr. was applying Jesus' teaching here, he thought that if you stand firm, if you neither fight nor flight, you show them your humanity and you confront the lack of humanity in their behavior towards you. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, that's obviously very different than the NFL ref situation, 
but I, I think there is a sense in which striking back um, can, can continue to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, Benjamin. Well, first thing, do you think it would, once you said to him nothing much, do you think it was too late when he asked you to verify that? Do you think it was too late, like that, that was basically just um, rhetorical? Like, it was too, yeah. Yeah, I think it was too late because it was more about the attitude that we were using when we were talking to one another. So sometimes we play this kind of game in, in our marriage relationships too or in our relationship with our neighbors where it's not so much the words that we say but it's the attitude that we have when we say these words, right? We could be passive aggressive or we could be sarcastic or we could be demeaning with our tone. And the point is not to just have our words be kind of by the book and not angry words but to not carry ourselves in that kind of angry way. Yeah, and one more thing is, was it, thank you, was it like, were they literally like, when you were talking about parallelism, were they literally like on top of each other, or like was it, is that important? The parallelism, yeah, it usually occurs one right after another. So line A, line B, and so that's the way that um, that that the Hebrew poets will will bring out some sort of message for us. We see that a lot in the Psalms, and we see that a lot in the wisdom literature. Yeah. Um, one of the things that the word that jumped out at me at, at this particular scripture, the Proverbs nineteen eleven, is glory. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a bit uh, Old Testament impaired. I haven't read a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But, but I can't recall any other time in, in my reading of the Bible where glory is used in connection with the character of an individual person. Mm-hmm. So I, it seems to me that this really underscores the importance of this point. Mm-hmm. That, you know, something, that, a, a characteristic I do not ascribe, that, that God's Word does not ascribe typically to persons is ascribed to persons yeah. in this respect because this this is how important it yeah, is. Yeah, and it, it, that, that phrase is sometimes used with virtues. Uh, he's saying this word, it is, it is your glory to overlook an offense. What does that mean? I, I think what's, what's going on there is um, you're being who you really are supposed to be when you overlook an offense. Why? Because we're created in the image of God and he's slow to anger, right? And so uh, when, when something is, is our glory... You know, we might say if somebody's like an excellent fly fisherman or something, you might say, man, that person, it's, it's their glory. Like when they're, when they're fly fishing, there's, there's something about them dealing, you know, that, uh, it's kind of an odd example, but there's something about somebody, uh, you know, uh, who's, a, who's an excellent singer, like these ladies that were singing earlier, whatever. There's something about you inhabiting who you were really intended to be that, that is your glory. I think is what's going on with that phrase. Maybe one or two more questions, just because we do have other things to do in this service. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So, so um, I think what Don is getting at um, in Sarah's example of somebody cutting in line, like if it was just you, you might overlook the offense. But I think what you're saying is there is an issue of injustice there, and that's a small example. But one of the reasons why we get angry is because something unjust happens. Somebody abuses their power. Someone takes away something from some uh, someone, something that belongs to them. And um, it's not always right. In fact, sometimes it's overly passive to not confront that evil deed. 
And we definitely see that in the prophetic tradition. You know, um, you know, maybe you overlook, it, if it comes to cutting in line, you know, maybe you overlook that a couple of times, but if you notice that as a pattern, it might actually serve your community that you're in with that person and be like, hey, I just noticed that you can be really inconsiderate when it comes to this stuff and you're kind of selfishly zooming in front of people, but just know there are other people waiting back here. You know? It's not so much about you or you just being offended, it's about the kind of justice or the instruction of the matter. And that would be an example of anger in a way, using anger in a way that's in keeping with um, God's character. Right? Because the prophets do confront injustice. And we see Jesus confronts oftentimes leaders who are abusing their power. Hypocrites, right? Jesus is not just like, oh, well, just, just sort of turn the other cheek. No, oftentimes he confronts them for the sake of those that they're abusing. Right? One more? Yeah, Jonathan. I noticed you say much about the last passage about the deep. Yeah. Adultery did you yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so the, the reason why I included that last passage from Proverbs 6, which um, I think it brings out a, a sense of nuance about how right and wrong are related but not the same um, when it comes to things that, that get people angry. And to me, it, it, it brings a sense of nuance. It's almost like a father were taking a son aside and saying, listen, son, if a hungry person steals food, they might get punished, but you could maybe forgive them for that. But stay away from another man's wife. Because whether or not you get punished from the law, you got a beating coming. Right? And so, you know, that anger that you produce by transgressing that moral boundary will, will continue to follow you. So be very careful. So he's, it's, not, it's not condoning the stealing of bread, even for somebody who's hungry, but it's saying, look, you can, you can sort of understand that, right? And that comes forth in, in the lack of anger that's expressed in that. It might be against, you know, the law. But in this other case, you're doing something that's both against the law, you know, with adultery, both against the law and is going to infuriate people. And I think uh, that, that was sort of um, the reason why I included that passage. I just want to say... Um, Let me, let, me, let me just say one last thing just about marriage dynamics, I think, when it comes to anger. Um, because this is, a, uh, this is a big thing, I think, for, for almost all married people, unless both people are very, very passive and you know, uh, conflict-averse. Usually that's not the case. Usually when you're in a close relationship with somebody or a roommate with somebody, oftentimes there's anger um, that, that can come about. And... Um, I, I think there's a dual responsibility in marriage. Maybe, uh, maybe your, your marriage is like mine, where I'm less likely to come home on time um, because I get involved in something that I think is very important. right? And, uh, but the problem is, is, if I always say, well, something really important came up, then I'm not really being a man of integrity to my wife. right? If I always say there's something important, something important's come up, and I'm always late for dinner... Then, then there's a sense in which the anger that results from that could be justified because I'm not being a man of my word. Um, but if on occasion I'm saying, hey, a very important pastoral situation, I had an opportunity to help somebody who was poor, I had an opportunity to preach the gospel, I couldn't I'd get away from that in the moment, then that gives her an opportunity to not be legalistic with me, but to be gracious. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. And she could say, oh, okay, 
you did tell me you were going to be home at 6, six o'clock for dinner or whatever, but let me be gracious with you because I see that it wasn't just for a selfish purpose. You were actually trying to help somebody else, and you're not doing this to me every single day, right? So, um, you know, just allowing you to, to uh, you know, peer a little bit into the psyche of Taylor and Carissa Bodo. But, um, but no, I mean, this is just something that, that we've had to work on, and I, I just use that as a vulnerable example because you guys are going to need to work on it your close relationships with your roommates, with your close friends, certainly with your spouses. Anger will divide a marriage. It will threaten a marriage. Unforgiveness, um, you know, I've, I've heard it said, it's like, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. And uh, something that a very wise pastor said to me recently, said when you see somebody who's really angry, um, recognize that anger is often serving as a bodyguard for pain. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, a, there's an issue of pain, and instead of letting themselves be vulnerable, or instead of just kind of being able to look past the insult, they've had a history of being abused in that area, and that's why they become quick to anger. So we have an opportunity to be gracious and not just say, hey, you need to calm down and not be angry, because the Bible says, that, like, you know, how do we apply this biblical injunction to be gracious with one another? especially with those we're closest to. Amen? Amen.